This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Now then, we've been delving back into the locker to bring you yet more insights and anecdotes from some of sport's biggest names. Tonight, we're in conversation with one of the greatest tennis players ever in 19-time Grand Slam winner, Rafael Nadal. That's not all. We'll also hear from the Spaniard's uncle and mentor, Tony, the man credited with developing Rafa into one of the greatest competitors sport let alone tennis, has ever seen. First up, though, let's hear from the man himself, Rafa Nadal. Our very own Chris McCarty recently popped over to Kuwait to spend some time with the Mallorcan on the sidelines of his new tennis academy. We'll get Nadal's thoughts on his tussle with Messrs Federer and Djokovic for tennis supremacy shortly. But first, Chris wanted to find out what Nadal's own philosophy was and whether he'll one day follow in the footsteps of Uncle Tony. Well, I like sometimes to... Well, today it's difficult to, to see myself like a coach because I'm still watching myself like a player now. But, uh, yeah, sometimes I, I, I like to, to, to say small tips to, to the people, to the kids from the academy or to, to my colleagues on tour like Casper or like Jaume Munar. I think, uh, yeah, have a lot of years here on the on the tour, and you know, sometimes because of the experiences, a couple of things that uh, young people don't know yet. No, and I don't know. I, I like the 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 journey of trying to help and to give back. Uh, so I why not? I think on the future, I I can be a little bit helpful. We've seen the likes of former world number one Carlos Moya. He's moved into coaching with yourself, of course. Goran Ivanisevic is now with Novak Djokovic. Do you see yourself coaching on tour one day? I have a, a tennis academy to, to run. Uh, and uh, we are doing uh, the right work there, I think. And uh, now we have uh, a new tennis academy here in, in Kuwait. And uh, hopefully will not be the last one. So we are open to, to see different options. So uh, why not? No, I am preparing my future to keep being involved in, in this beautiful sport like tennis. And uh, why not? I think I will be around uh, the world of tennis in the future. This part is an important part of my life. So let's see. Let's see what's going on. Never say never. Now, I made the mistake back in November when sitting with your uncle Tony to say that you'd achieved everything in the game. And he shot me down instantly. He said that you hadn't won the Australian Open in 2020, the French Open in 2020, Wimbledon in 2020. But what continues to motivate you, Rafa? Because you've achieved an awful lot in the game. Well, first of all, the the, the passion for what you're doing no? and the love for for the game. I personally uh, like playing tennis. I like the, the competition and... Uh, and yes, I am happy doing what I am doing. That's that's why I'm uh, excited to keep going. No, if arrive a day that I am not happy because my body is not able to hold well, or because one or another reason, that's going to be the moment to to say goodbye and to try to 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 do another to find another motivations. No, but for the moment, I am still very happy doing what I am doing. Now, one other aspect in that little conversation with Tony Rafa was that I was incredibly stunned to hear that the previous night he had spent the evening watching the entirety of your US Open final against Novak Djokovic back in 2010. Is that a pastime that you share with Tony? Do you enjoy watching your games back? Uh, Not the full matches. Sometimes (laughs) some highlights if I want to check a couple of things. Full matches not. Uh, Yeah, I am... I am pl- playing and around tennis during the whole day. So when I'm 
when I have my uh, free time, I try to <laughs> do other things. No, that helps me to 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 stay alive too and to to be happy uh, because tennis is a very important part of my life. But uh, not everything. No, I have a lot of things in this life that makes me happy and try to enjoy it too. Rafa, you've won tournaments all around the planet. You're a 19-time Grand Slam winner, of course. 12 French Opens in there. Of all your victories and all your titles, which one stands out? It's difficult to say. No, I can't tell you one in particular. Honestly, no. In 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 every single moment, in yeah, in every moment of my career, I had great victories. If you tell me I have to choose one probably will be Wimbledon 2008 uh, for different reasons no? but yeah that's all <laughs> Now I saw firsthand at the Mubadala World Tennis Championship your friendship with Novak Djokovic of course it's well documented how close you are with Roger Federer I'm prying a little here Rafa but do the three of you have a private WhatsApp group together? Yes uh, yeah we are in doubt uh, of course no 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 doubt. Uh, at the end of the day, we are um, we talk the same language. We are together in in a lot of. Uh, we are doing the same thing for such a long time, and we love what we are doing. So I think we have a responsibility for for promoting the right way uh, our sport. So we we are just trying to taking care about uh, things that can be helpful to to keep promoting tennis around the world and. Uh, now will be a great opportunity to be with Roger in, in South Africa. will be an amazing experience and uh, I am excited about it too. You mentioned that WhatsApp group. Now, Roger tops the Grand Slam pile with 20. Yourself on 19, of course. Novak has moved on to 17. Do you joke? No. We're... You don't talk about it at all? We don't joke much about this. No. At the end, I think everybody's doing his his own way. No, and I, I honestly... Okay, of course I would love to, to finish uh, with more Grand Slams than, than anybody else, but, but it's something that I am not obsessed at all. And honestly, I am super happy about my, my tennis career. No? If, if at the end uh, Roger is uh, over than me or Novak is over than me or both of them are over than me, okay, life continues. I don't think in, in 10 years uh, I will be happier or less happy if uh, if I am on the top second or third I don't think will not change my my life perspective no at all so just trying to keep enjoying what I am doing and if you were a betting man Rafa who would you favor I don't know let's see let's see I am not a betting man <laughs> I don't like to bet no and uh, I just like to to enjoy the the process and uh, I something that I, I honestly I I am part of it. I I don't I don't know. I don't care that much. Honestly, let's see. Hmm. Do you believe him? Nope. Me neither. Let's now get the thoughts of Uncle Tony. Chris again caught up with him in Kuwait at the initial launch of the Rafa Nadal Tennis Academy last year and began by asking Tony to pick one of the hundreds of Rafa's matches that stands out. His answer was revealing in more ways than one. Yesterday I saw in the iPad in the night, I saw the, his match in, uh, in the US Open 2010. And, uh, you watched that? Play, yes, yesterday, because many times I watch and he played really good against uh, one of the best, uh, uh, Djokovic, yeah. and he played really good. And in this year he won 
Roland Garros and Wimbledon. I don't know if uh, this one was his best. I don't know, but uh, what I know is uh, during all this year, Rafael has improved a lot. Now he, I think he run a little less, but he served so much better. Yeah. Then uh, with this serve and uh, I have seen this week in Madrid, when he served so well, then he can hit the ball very well. But I don't know when uh, he was his best in 2008, he played really well. In 2013, for me, was maybe his best year because he has a lot of problems. He cannot, he cannot run a lot. He can not go down with uh, his legs because he has a problem in his knees and still so he finished number one in the world and uh, the 2013 he played really well I remember in, in the US Open and uh, he cannot move so much I don't know. Having won everything there is to win, what continues to motivate Rafael? That's the question Chris put to Tony, who was quick to shoot it down. He didn't want everything. He won many things, not everything. He won many things. But in the future, what uh, the tournament that come, will come in the future, never he won. Never he won this tournament. Uh, still now, he has not won the Australian Open to 2020. He has not won the Australian, the Roland Garros 2022. Then, then, why he he has this commitment with uh, his work? Because this is what make a normal player, a normal person. Because uh, for everyone. For Rafael, for Federer, for for Djokovic, or for many players, it's not only a thing about to win tournaments. It's a thing about to have a personal satisfaction, and this is, uh, I think, what is are looking for Rafael always. And then we have to know, it's so beautiful to be on the top, <laughs> so good to win matches and to to win tournaments and I think uh, Rafael has in his mentality in his mind now to try to to pass uh, Federer Do you think he will? I think uh, yes of course I, I will think it because I, I will Is uh, I know that it's not easy because every tournament is difficult to win but now in this moment who is the most favorite to win Roland Garros? <laughs> I think Rafael with team, but Rafael is yeah. there. So I think Rafael has the possibility to win some Grand Slams more. And finally, what about one of sport's great legends? Is it true that Tony made the right-handed Rafael play with his left hand on purpose at a young age? Take a listen. It's not true. The only true was... Rafael, when he was young, he played both shots with both hands. He played he play 
the forehand like this, yeah. no, with uh, two hands and backhand like this. Two <laughs> and when the ball came in the middle, always he go in this position. For this reason, I thought he was left-handed. And then, when he always when he want to make a, a faster shot, a strong shot, he uh, goes in this position. No? The only thing what I said was, Rafael, no one player in this moment play, no, not a one top ten player play with two hands, the forehand and the backhand. We have to change. Rafael played really well when he was young with two hands. But when he was 10 years old, 10, 11 years old, I don't remember well, I think 10, 10, 11 years old, I start to change. And I said, okay, you have to play the, the forehand only with one hand. And we start, I remember, uh, we start very logical and simple. The first day he played normal with two hands and then five minutes only with one hand. Then he played 10 minutes. After two weeks, he played 15 minutes. He played all his uh, uh, practice with two hands and then 15 minutes only with uh, one hand. And was always the same. And every day, a little more, a little more, and at the end, one day I said, "Okay, now you have to play this tournament with one hand." Now then, switching tact a little, albeit staying with tennis, and following on from the thoughts there of both Rafa and Tony, and I do sincerely thank them for their time over in Kuwait over the course of the past few months. I want to get scientific now for a moment, if I may, because back in February, I caught up with Nero Savantin, an associate professor of organisation behaviour at the London Business School. Now that sounds impressive, and that's because it is. Nero recently worked and authored a research study on the impact of psychology and world ranking in tennis on performance. He found, having studied more than 117,000 pro tennis matches, that players perform worse when pitted against an opponent that was upwardly mobile in the rankings. In other words, a player with momentum, quote unquote. Here's Nero now to explain in more detail. We came at it with this idea that uh, momentum or change um, in sports and, and other social contexts might have differential impact. So just to kind of step back for a moment, um, we all sort of understand sort of the physical properties of momentum, right? So when a ball is thrown, um, we in the physical world, we know that the ball just doesn't come to uh, a sudden stop, but sort of lands, bounces a few times, and rolls. So we kind of project sort of where the ball will end, looking at broadly through the trajectory and the force with which it's traveling. Turns out we also kind of impute that type of mindset into social objects. So uh, uh, rankings of, for instance, um, business school rankings or corporate rankings, etc. When we see movement of a company, uh, whether it be their revenues or some other sort of social rank, we sort of project that 
it'll continue in that direction. It doesn't sort of come to a sudden stop, but we sort of project that moving forward. And so this is broadly sort of referred to as uh, momentum or psychological momentum. And so uh, you could sort of see where this sort of plays out in sports. Then we sort of want to know, you know, if a competitor, whatever the sport it may be, does that have a... Uh, differential impact on sort of the focal actor or the focal team when they see another uh, player or team approaching them with momentum, right? So, for instance, with tennis, let's say, you know, Nadal is uh, about to play against a competitor. Does Nadal's play be impacted by a player who previously has risen in the rank from let's say 20 to 15 to 5, versus kind of his arch nemesis, let's say Federer, who's always been ranked 5 the previous three iterations. Um, Now, from an objective standpoint, uh, the person who's consistently been number 5 should be the one that you want to take more seriously. On average, they are more threatening, if you will, to you, right? Mm -hmm. They're sort of the individual that's been sort of uh, nipping away at your toes, and this is the person that you should pay attention to. But what we wondered was whether someone who's shown movement or what we call sort of momentum might in fact pose a greater threat to Nadal playing someone who's risen from 15-10-5 versus someone who's uh, been in the fifth spot uh, for the three iterations prior. Uh, and that's kind of where it led us to the study that you're referring to. And in one of that, one of them, we decided to look at uh, professional sports, uh, the tennis, and even more specifically, the ATP and the WTA. Uh, and we looked at, if I'm not mistaken, about 27 years worth of data wow. of uh, individuals playing um you know, these are professionals who are kind of at the the, the peak or the apex of their sport. Um, see how they react differentially to the rank of the player that they're playing, and specifically when they play against someone with momentum and someone without momentum. So the analysis, um, and, and the credit to this goes to my PhD student. Um, fortunately, it didn't require us to watch um, <laughs> all of the matches, although I don't think either of us would have minded if we had yeah. to like sports and would have been happy to watch um although 27 years worth of uh, tennis might have been a bit too much so that's the premise of what nero set out to achieve here he breaks it down for us in a little bit more detail what we did was we looked at the first match of every professional tournament um and the reason we looked at the first round is, as you know, the rank in players only changes across tournaments, doesn't change within. So your ATP rank yeah. uh, changes at the conclusion of every tournament, doesn't change round by round. And so when you're going into a Grand Slam or a Masters or another one of the uh, ATP circuits, you know if you are... Federer or Dojkovic, you know in in the first round who you're playing, but you also have a sense of their movement, if you will, since the previous round, or I should say the previous tournament. And so what we wanted to see is whether uh, the momentum of your opponent had an impact in how well you did. And we looked at both sort of uh, the margins at which they won the match 
And perhaps most importantly, what we wanted to see was um, unforced errors. And the idea here, sort of at the psychological level, is that if I am playing a player who's just gone from, let's say, 20 to 10 to 5, my mental representation going back to the momentum is that it's an upward trend, and mm-hmm. my future projection for you is that man, you're about to head towards the number one spot. Yes. And what that does is it psychologically, you find that threatening because this is someone who's going to displace you and your rank and your chance of a championship. And that should, uh, if faced with psychological threat, it should throw you off your game. And so what we looked at was unforced errors and specifically double faults, right? Here, you can't blame anyone uh, but yourself for double faults. With other... other um, points that might lose, it's very possible the other player is just better than you and therefore beats you. But as a way to sort of check the robustness of this, we looked at double faults. And what we find is that, sure enough, as we sort of predicted, individuals who face an opponent showing momentum, whether it be from the previous tournament or even much larger windows of two tournaments, three tournaments, five, six, uh, individuals are far more likely both to lose a match against someone who's um, showing momentum, and uh, equally impressively, commit far more double faults wow. or unforced errors than someone uh, who hasn't shown momentum. Okay. So even if the uh, the rating is the same, let's say I'm playing two individuals, they're both ranked 10, someone who's come from 30 to 20 to 10, uh, our data across a 27-year window suggests that I am more likely to lose to that player than someone who's been ranked 10. Absolutely. Piece. You see this effect whether kind of you slice at the top end of the spectrum, so you're talking about the likes of, you know, Serena Williams and sort of others that are in the top 10, or even if you slice this effect, those who are ranked much lower, someone who's oh, ranked wow. 80 versus someone who's ranked uh 100, right? And you would think these individuals are not within the the typical radar, but of course, before your match, you do sort of... Do some research. Do some research, and and you look to see who you're playing, and you realize, wait a second, this person has been progressively improving. They're not stagnant, they're not uh, dropping. Uh, And so the psychology, uh, whether it be sort of you know, you're ranked number one or, or to ten uh, seems to be the same as whether you're in the hundred. And so the million dollar question then, what can we deduce from this? What momentum shows is that uh, uh, the player's chance of winning drop from, let's say, base levels of 52% to 38% as the opponent's momentum increases. So it's a fairly large uh, proportion, especially when you aggregate to, across multiple games. So, um, it, so it does seem to have a uh, consequential impact on tennis. And last but by no means least, the obvious follow-up question then. Armed with this data, how do opposition players and coaches go about ensuring that they guard against it? Yeah, and that's it's a wonderful question because it's kind of like, you know, how do you, given that this, this negatively impacts you, um, how do you overcome it? Yes. Uh, and and, and uh, I mean, in a simple manner, frankly, I don't have a very clear answer to it, and and here's uh, why. Because one of the things was you could argue, look, the player showing momentum is also just naturally getting is is improving themselves. Um, we do sort of rule that out that irrespective of sort of actual improvement, people still feel threatened by momentum. 
the the reason why I'm saying it, it becomes harder to sort of cognitively train yourself out of this is we also, in addition to um, tennis, where the errors are physical, we looked at something that's entirely cognitive, right? entirely mental, which is um, chess. Um, so we looked at something like five plus million observations of chess matches in the um, the fixed server, which is the free internet chess server, where various players with various rank play chess. And so we have kind of five million player by game data. And we see this exact same phenomenon. When a chess player's rank increases, the opponent is threatened and is more likely to lose to that player than someone else who is also ranked similarly. Uh, so this is this momentum seems to sort of kind of mentally impact or deter their ability to play chess. Right? This isn't an unforced error of the physical magnitude, but arguably sort of a cognitive ma- magnitude. Um, so how you could overcome this, um, I don't have very clear data to say here's what uh, you know, Arteta needs to tell his club when they're facing someone with momentum. Um, you could certainly advise that the reason why people fail isn't necessarily always the team is better, but because of the errors that we make given that we attribute momentum or think that they are better than they actually are. How effective that is, I'm I'm afraid I can't comment on that. I don't have very good data to say, hey, here's a strategy that I would prescribe um, player X to engage in prior to the match, because it does seem to cognitively occupy people's, um, you know, I think people ruminate over this. I think when you you are psyched out by someone who shows lots of momentum, uh, whether that you know rationally or not, um, it seems to impact you. There you have it then, confirmation that momentum, no matter your rank, can and does play a role in deciding the outcome of a tennis match. A big thanks once again to Nero Savantin from the London Business School. I'm sure we will have him on in future editions. A big thanks to Rafa Nadal, a big thanks to Tony Nadal, and I'm sure for all of you tennis lovers tuned into this podcast, you'll agree, fascinating stuff, even if I do say so myself, over the course of the past half hour or so. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.